Our scripture passage for this morning, two verses from 1 Corinthians 10, verses 16 and 17, and three verses from chapter 11, verses 23 to 25. Hear now the word of God. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. And then coming over to chapter 11, verse 23. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Thus ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he lay its eternal truths on our hearts this morning. Let's pray together. Lord, I must confess a great sense of inadequacy. No doubt there are are innumerable things we could say from your word about your supper. And so would you help me today that I would faithfully open your word and show your people from the scripture what your word says, what you have said about yourself. Protect us from having our eyes clouded by traditions that are not found in your word. Protect us from human wisdom, which though very great and important, can never replace or usurp your word. Protect us from superstition, remembering that the point of all these gifts is to increase the faith of your people. And protect us from a desire to be clever or wise in our own eyes. Make us open to hearing you tell us the truth about your blessings today. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I was talking to my my wife this week and just reflecting that... uh, these sermons, the last three weeks, and I really think this week and next, are pretty dense. This is heavy material that we're working through, and so if you, this is your first week at, at Evergreen, or if you have arrived here for the first time in the last three weeks, uh, what you have gotten is a little bit different than our usual diet. Normally, we open a text, and we simply walk through it, and we try to understand what the text says, and we've been doing a topical series on the subject of the sacraments. And so you've walked into the middle of a dense discussion. Uh, And I only want to to reassure you, I think the simplicity will return one day. Will be. Um, But until then, we're talking about serious, heavy subjects that uh, the Lord has revealed things to us. And if he hadn't revealed these things to us, we would certainly be lost. But at least we have God's word that we can go to. And so if you feel like, wow, this is really daunting... Uh, just hang in there, uh, hang in there, and feel free to talk about these things uh, with others, uh, knowing that they're probably feeling the same thing you are. Um, We've been talking, though, about the subjects of the sacraments, and specifically the last two weeks we talked about the subjects of baptism. And we noted that, that this is a sacrament that God gave to his people as a sign and a seal of his promise to save us from our sins through faith in Jesus. That's what the sacrament of baptism is. And now we're moving this week to the second sacrament that God has given to his church, 
and that sacrament is the Lord's Supper. And so if you've ever been to a service here at Evergreen before, then, then one thing you know is that we observe the Lord's Supper each week, uh, unless we just don't have a teaching elder here to administer the supper. And it's been a while, I think, if I understand it right, that that's actually happened. Uh, but the plan normally is for us to observe it each week. So if you've been here before, then you know how we do the supper. But I, I also find that this is just a universal need across the church, that people in the, Lord's, uh, in the church often need to understand not how the Lord's Supper is done, but what it means. What are we saying when we do this? Why do we do it the way that we do it? We've seen how we do it, but why? And so there's still this need for all of us to have instruction from time to time. Um, and so it's important for us to be able to answer the question for ourselves, what is the Lord's Supper? What does the Lord's Supper mean? Um, why did Jesus, in his wisdom and in his kindness and in his love, why did he give us the Lord's Supper? Just like we did with baptism, we're going to try to answer the question using sort of the same structure. So our outline today is almost identical to our outline from two weeks ago. First, we're going to look at the Lord's Supper's origin. Second, the Lord's Supper's elements. And then third, the Lord's Supper's meaning. Um, so the first thing, we're just going to go right into it. What is the origin of the Lord's Supper? Now, we can't be exhaustive about this. There are, I have a book in my office called Communion. Uh, I believe it's called the, the Communion and the History of the Christian Church. It's about this thick, um, and I haven't read it all. So I'm not going to just reiterate what that book says. You, you, know, you won't be here till uh, tomorrow evening. Um, but there's so much you could say. There's so much you could say about the origin of the Lord's Supper. So I'm going to stay very simple. Uh, I just want us to see, first of all, that Jesus gave us the supper during the observation of a Jewish festival, and that Jewish festival was the Passover. Now, in the Old Testament, you had a number of festivals that people were given. Uh, God gave them seven feasts. They had the Feast of Passover and Unleavened Bread. They happened over the top of each other. They overlapped. You have the Feast of First Fruits and the Feast of Weeks. You had the Feast of Trumpets, the Day of Atonement. And the Feast of Booths. You have all these feast days that God has given to Israel. And all of these were meant to be covenant meals. And what that meant is that God's people were, were understood to be eating with the Lord. They were understood to be having communion with the Lord. God, through the, the tabernacle and through the temple, was seen as being present with the people. And so when they go to these places and they have these meals, they're having covenant meals with God. Um, they're, they're making atonement, they're, they're um, bringing uh, animals to be sacrificed, and then they're able to sit down with God and, and enjoy the peace that they have with him because of this sacrifice. And so when they had these meals, they were meals of communion. And they weren't just meals of communion with each other, but especially with God. There's this intensely vertical dimension to these meals and these festivals. Um, we saw this with circumcision, and we saw this with baptism the last few weeks, but these meals also, just like that covenant sign of circumcision and baptism, they were a sign meant to tangibly show in a visible way the promises that God had made to them. And so today, though, we're talking about the Lord's Supper. And Jesus gives the Lord's Supper during Passover. So I think any talk about where the Lord's Supper comes from has to reckon with what Passover is. So Passover was a festival God, God gave to his people after he rescued them out of Egypt. You can read all about that rescue in the book of Exodus. Um, he rescues them out of Egypt, and then he gives them Passover. Now, the, the Passover was meant to commemorate 
how he rescued them from Egypt. And so if you remember the story of Moses and you remember uh, the ten plagues and you remember the crossing of the Red Sea, you'll remember that before they crossed the Red Sea on the last night, that they had to place, they had to sacrifice a lamb. And they had to take the blood of that lamb and they had to place it over the doorpost of their house so that the angel of death would not take the firstborn of their household. And so what's happening is in the Passover, God was showing Israel they deserve judgment and that there is mercy for them because of a coming substitute, a sacrificial lamb whose blood would be shed for them. They were also commanded to eat the lamb. They had to feed upon that lamb who died to spare them. And, of course, we know that in the first Passover, the whole household ate that sacrificial lamb together. The Passover festival is not identical to that first Passover. So uh, I don't think it would be safe to say, well, everything that we can interpolate or uh, read from that very first Passover, all of that carries over and we can draw all kinds of things about the Passover today. Um, Because the Passover festival is introduced for us in Leviticus 12. It's not to be observed in just any place where the Jewish people find themselves. The first time they observe the Passover is in Jerusalem. Um, Deuteronomy 16.6 says that the Passover is to be observed in Jerusalem. He tells them that that's the place where they're to meet, to observe the Passover, and to eat the lamb. And so his plan is not for them to observe the festival of Passover until they are secure in the land. And this is actually the practice that you see in the New Testament, right? When the time of the Passover comes, people don't just observe the Passover anywhere. What do they do? They flock to Jerusalem so they can observe it. The Passover festival didn't involve the whole family. Um, Heads of the household and older children would make the arduous journey to Jerusalem with the sacrifice. And so, so instead of whole families, it was often the head of the household and those who were physically capable of making the journey with them. Uh, it's, uh, Jesus actually makes the trip to Jerusalem for the Passover at, at age 12, for example. And we know from the Mishnah, which is a collection of traditions of the Jews from the time of Jesus, we know from the Mishnah that when the young man in the household uh, was 12 years old, he would begin observing Passover, um, usually under the oversight of his father or another man in the house. Um, that's a very quick version of the Passover. I could keep going. You know, there's a lot to it. Um, But it was God's first covenant meal that he gave to his people. So when we're talking about the origins of the Lord's Supper, we are are right to start with the Passover. But the Lord's Supper is is actually instituted in three of the synoptic gospels. It's introduced in Matthew 14, or in Matthew 26, Mark 14, and Luke 22. Um, Paul also gives us a, a nearly identical account of it in 1 Corinthians 11. That was our passage that we read this morning, the second passage that we read. Jesus is very careful to choose the location of this supper, which is the upper room. And he is concerned to make sure that things are in place. Um, You see in the narrative how he gives these explicit instructions. You need to make sure we have a place to observe it. It's, It's important to Jesus that they actually observe a proper Passover meal. So to put it basically, think about this. When the people were in Egypt... A lamb was slain and blood was spilled. And in this meal, Jesus interprets the wine of the meal as being his blood spilled to seal the covenant. 
Um, and in this meal, Jesus interprets the bread that's broken as his body that's broken to forgive his people. When Jesus eats the Passover, in other words, he is totally self-centered. He is totally self-centered in the best way possible. As he is looking at this food, as he is looking at this drink, he sees himself and his death at the center of it all. He sees, that, he sees what he's about to do as everything that all of this was leading towards. And in a sense, what that means is that the Jews had been proclaiming the shadow of Jesus for as long as they had been observing the Passover. For Jesus, the perfect vehicle to convey this message about his death is the meal of the Passover. Right? Jesus is saying something in this meal. He's saying, I am the lamb that was slain. You must eat my flesh and drink my blood in order to live. Right? My life must become your life. I must become part of you in order to serve you, in order to save you. This meal, this meal, this meal is the picture. This is what salvation is like. The life doesn't come from outside of, uh, uh, from inside of you. It comes from outside of you. Keep eating the bread together. Keep drinking the cup together. Remember and pray and repeat. Keep doing it. Don't just do it one time. Do it all the time. Do it constantly. Do it, do it frequently. Proclaim my death. Do not forget. So you notice this pattern from Jesus' life. He doesn't, he doesn't abolish the old. He fulfills it. And as he fulfills it, he tweaks its practice. Um, with circumcision, right, he didn't get rid of having a sign of the covenant. Instead, he fulfilled that sign and he changed the sign. He transformed the sign. And yet he kept its core meaning. And the same goes for the Passover, right? He fulfills the Passover and he transforms the depth of the Passover because he sees himself as the completion of the Passover. He's, he is the fulfillment of the Passover. He, he is the keeping of an old promise and this meal is a sign of the promise kept. And that's what Jesus is, is showing us and it's what he's showing his disciples in the upper room. God is a promise keeper. He hasn't forgotten what the Passover said. He never forgot what it was for. He never forgot what it was leading to. In fact, he was actively at work making sure that the, that, that the Lord's Supper or that the Passover would never just be a shadow. He always knew there was a coming substance to it. Okay, that's the origin, origin of the Lord's Supper. Uh, if you've studied these things more, much, you're thinking, oh no, there's so much more that could be said. Yes, but we have to keep going. So let's talk more about the elements of what Jesus says the Lord's Supper includes and what it means. Um, in the words of institution here, Paul mentions three specific things that Jesus did. We could point out more, but let's just focus on these three. These three things which he says do this. First, the Lord's Supper includes the giving of thanks. Um, you may have heard um, from some Christian traditions the Lord's Supper called the Eucharist. Um, I've seen some Presbyterian churches where they call it the Eucharist. I've seen Anglican churches where they call it the Eucharist. Uh, and uh, Lutheran churches often call it the Eucharist. The Eucharist, really, it's just the Greek word for giving thanks. It's giving thanks. It's Thanksgiving. We have the Eucharist every year in November, right? We have Thanksgiving. Um, I don't think we would normally call it the Eucharist, but you get the idea. The word is just simply a way of saying giving thanks. So when Jesus 
gives this meal to his followers, what does he do? He gives thanks to God. Why does he do that? Because it's a gift. Because, because it's not owed. Uh, he gives thanks to God because it, it came from God. Uh, he gives thanks to God because the Lord's Supper didn't come from us. We didn't invent it. When we observe the Lord's Supper as a church, we make sure to keep with this pattern. We always make sure that the supper is, is bathed in prayer. We pray during the whole service multiple times. We pray at the close of the sermon. We pray after we distribute the elements. We pray after we've partaken of the elements. See, the pattern of Jesus is that we are a thankful people. We are, we're meant to be a people who live in full dependence. Um, even Jesus, when he distributed the elements, he made sure that he's, his people saw the model. We received the, from the generosity of God, and so we give thanks. When you think of the Lord's Supper, think of it as, think of it as answered prayer on full display. Um, that's why the Lord's Supper should be surrounded in prayer, because in that prayer, we call upon God, the Holy Spirit, to bring us the blessings of Jesus. That's what we're asking him to do. Lord, make it so. Make this thing that you've given to us real. Make it happen. Because we can't. We're, de- we're depending on you to do this. So that's the first thing I want you to see, that the Lord's Supper includes the giving of thanks. Second, the Lord's Supper includes the breaking of bread. You see it in verse 24, where Paul reminds us, he says, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you. I mentioned that sometimes the Lord's Supper is called the Eucharist because it's a Thanksgiving meal. Um, In other places in the New Testament, it's called the breaking of bread. So they have different names for it. You have the breaking of bread. Acts chapter 2 verse 42 calls it the breaking of bread. Um, Acts 20 verse 7 says that on the first day of the week, we were gathered together to break bread. And then it says that Paul preached a sermon that lasted until midnight. So if you think to yourself, ah, the sermon seems kind of long. Remember that time that guy got so sleepy that he fell out of a window and almost died. Um, So (laughs) notice, though, how they they seem to define the Lord's Supper with this shorthand. They just call it the breaking of bread. For them, the breaking of bread is a great way of summarizing how they kept doing the thing Jesus told them to do at the end of the Gospels, right? They keep doing the Lord's Supper. They're not, they have, a, it's not a later invention. It's happening right away as soon as the resurrection has taken place. Um, Jesus uses bread. He could have used any solid substance in the world. Uh, he could have used meat. Gee, wouldn't meat be actually a great picture of the nourishment that we get from Jesus? Um, he could have used any kind of food that he wanted to, but he chose bread. Um, except for maybe rice, bread is probably the most common staple of nutrition in the world today. Um, bread is so basic to life that when Jesus was telling his disciples to pray for God uh, to take care of their daily needs, what is the expression that he uses? He says, give us this day our daily bread. Um, he doesn't mean that we're supposed to ask God, literally give me a loaf of bread every day. But instead, he's, he's using bread as sort of a stand-in for the thing we need most to keep us going each day. Um, in a sense, Jesus is saying, pray for your daily bread, because when you do that, you're declaring that it's God keeping you alive, making sure that you have what you need. And in essence, Jesus is saying something very important. He's saying, what bread is for your body, that's what I am for your soul. 
Just like you need basic food to keep you going, I am your basic food. I am your meat and drink. I am the one that keeps you going. And there's more to this as well, right? um, Because this isn't just bread, but but Jesus says it's broken bread. Um, This is bread that had to be ruined in order to be of any benefit to us. Um, The bread must be broken. It has to be separated from itself. There has to be a sacrifice. Um, Its wholeness has to be ruined. Um, Without a sacrifice, you have no Savior. And there is no Christ without the cross. The broken bread is a reminder of the need for the cross. Broken bread reminds us that the supper isn't merely a a nourishing meal, um, a celebration, though it's assuredly that, but it's also to to eat of the broken bread of Jesus and in some sense to share in his suffering because when you take it in, what are you doing? You're taking in someone that had to be punished, right? You're taking in his suffering to take in his suffering and yet be strengthened by it. We're sharing in his affliction when we put that broken bread in our mouth. To take this bread is, in a sense, to say the suffering of Jesus is something that I take into myself. It becomes a part of me. This death becomes my life. I'm living off of him. And when we share in his suffering, we also share in what comes from his suffering, which is salvation, which is life itself. That's what the bread is conveying. That's what the bread is meant to convey. It's why he chose it. Let's talk about types of bread for a moment. Uh, How important is it that we get a specific type of bread? Uh, Is there a type of bread that's wrong? I think when we think about the Israelites eating bread, we only think of them as eating one kind of bread. We always think of unleavened bread. Um, And that is probably because the only time we ever talk about bread in Israel is when we're thinking about the Passover. Uh, We don't talk about everyday bread consumption in Israel, right? I mean, I've never heard, walked in on a conversation with you guys going, I wonder what they would eat in the month of July in Israel. Um, Not very often. It doesn't really come up. And yet in Israel, Passover was the only time bread was actually expected to be unleavened. That didn't mean that people didn't make unleavened bread other times a year, but it was the only time that you would expect it to be unleavened. Um, And that was because, you know, why did they have unleavened bread in the Passover? Because the people of Israel were on the run. There wasn't time for the bread to rise. There was no leaven in their bread. They had flat bread um, because of the rush out of Egypt as they fled from Pharaoh during their escape. And so the rest of the year, what did the Jewish people eat, though? They ate ordinary bread the way we think of it. You would have gone to the marketplace and they would have had leavened and fluffy, yeasty bread. Um, If you went to the markets, that that was what you would have had to choose from. Um, All year long, except during the time of the Passover, where you wouldn't, at least if they were following the rules, uh, you would not see even one piece of leavened bread. So when we have the Lord's Supper, what are we supposed to do? Are we supposed to eat... Unleavened bread every time that we have the Lord's Supper. Um, Does Jesus say that we should make our bread like the Israelites on the run or like a people who are secure in the land? Well, the answer is he doesn't tell us. He simply says we should have bread. Um, I think of it sort of like the water in, in baptism, right? It's important to the word of God that we have water applied to us in baptism, but not so much how we get it, right? I think the same goes for bread. 
He doesn't, uh, he doesn't say what kind of bread. He simply wants us to make sure that we take and break bread. Um, you sort of see this indifference actually in the history of the church. You see this as the practice, the, the fact that the practice is all over the map between the early church, the medieval church, the reformed church. Um, in the early church, people would gather, and here's what would happen. They had something during the service called the offering. And we think of the offering as giving money. And actually, when they did the offering, people would come forward and households would just bring bread and wine. So everybody's presenting their bread and wine. And then the person who is leading the service would take the, the bread and he would distribute it to everybody. So you would get basically whatever the Smith family brought that week or whatever uh, the, the Jones family brought that week. And you would have a wide variety of bread. Some weeks you would have unleavened bread. Some weeks you would have leavened bread. Um, and you never quite knew. Um, which is a fantastic way of sort of avoiding controversy, you know. Uh, nobody's going to complain because you can just blame the Joneses this week. I don't think we have any Joneses in here, so. Uh, it's hard thinking of names and making sure no one in the room has that name. Um, and that's sort of what happened in the early church. Now, here's what happens, though, later on. The Eastern church ends up adopting using leavened bread. So if you went to a, an Eastern Orthodox service in the Eastern Church, the Byzantine Church on the Eastern side of the empire, you're going to get the fluffy bread over there. And then if you go over to the, the Western Church, well, eventually they end up adopting unleavened bread. And in large part, the reason for this was because they believed it was Jesus's physical body. And one thing you might notice with leavened bread, it's pretty easy to break off and have pieces fall. Well, they were very nervous about this because obviously they don't want pieces of Jesus to fall on the floor. And, and they believed that was what was happening. And if you dropped crumbs, you were obligated to eat it. The priest had to make sure all of the wine was drunk and you had to make sure that all of the bread was consumed. And so they used unleavened bread. Part of the reason was because, because they didn't want any crumbs to fall. They didn't want to have pieces that they lost. And now if you go to a, please don't, but if you go to a Roman Catholic church and you receive the bread, you know, you get a flat wafer that actually resembles kind of those awful things we were getting for a while when we did the peel-off tops, you know, those peel-off tops that we were doing for a while. They serve their purpose, but I don't think any of us would say, yeah, I want to eat that all the time. Um, but that was kind of what they did, and you didn't get any crumbs from that. And they sort of devised ways to make sure that you didn't get crumbs from that because of that belief. Now, the Anglican Church kept that practice as well, and then the Reformed churches used unleavened bread. Um, not universally, there was a mixed practice, but I think that's kind of the point. Sort of with baptism, I tried to point out that you have examples of people standing to be baptized, and you have examples in the early church of people being fully immersed. All of these are seen as legitimate. Um, now, later on, you see some people really, really, really taking strong positions on what kind of bread and whether it was supposed to be leavened or unleavened. But I would argue this, that leavened bread is certainly within the range of what Jesus calls us to. Um, after all, Jesus planned on people observing the supper all year long, not only during Passover. And so whatever bread they would have had on hand is simply what they had. So for Christians to observe the supper, he simply calls us to break bread in some form. Um, either leavened or unleavened is permitted. And so, sort of in keeping with that, one thing you're going to notice is a particular change today when we observe the supper. Instead of using unleavened uh, flat matzah-style bread we have that we've used in the past, we're going to also use yeast bread. 
Now, the bread that we have is gluten exclusion. It's not considered gluten-free because I guess factories have a hard time promising you that there's no gluten in the building. Um, but it's gluten exclusion, which means that if you have a gluten sensitivity, you should be fine taking it. But um, if you absolutely can't have even a scrap of it, the company is not promising that there's no gluten anywhere in the building. Um, but we're going to start using that. Um, you will notice that the bread is a little, little fluffier, that it's a little quieter to eat. Maybe that's one of the hallmarks of our, our present practices. You can tell when everyone's eaten. There's a collective crunch. Um, this, the session has, you know, we've discussed this extensively. And while Jesus' original observance of the supper was certain with, certainly with unleavened bread, um, they... Um, uh, his command was simply that we have some kind of bread and that we observe it more frequently than just once a year at the Passover time. So whether leavened or unleavened, it's still bread. So our session here is not making a theological choice, but really a, an aesthetic choice. Um, the important command is that we use bread, not that we use a certain kind of bread. Um, for Jesus, it's important that we eat bread that has been broken. Um, for Jesus, the breaking of bread is the way that he wants his people to visually see what he did for them. He wants, he wants us to see that he was ruined for us. He wants us to see that in a graphic portrayal that Jesus died and his body was broken to secure our redemption. That's why he offered them broken bread. And it's why we do as well. Third, the Lord's Supper includes the giving of the cup. Um, at the Passover, there's no question that there was a cup. The cup did not include water. It didn't include any other substance. It contained wine. And so besides bread, the second element of the Lord's Supper is the element of wine. Uh, I say the word wine and not just the cup, because that's exactly what was used in the Passover, cup or, uh, Passover Supper. The cup is shorthand for wine. The important thing here was not that the disciples passed around a cup with just anything in it, and as long as they used the cup, then it was fine. No, Jesus says to drink wine. And the Passover, at the Passover, Jesus gave wine to all his disciples, and he told them, this wine is the choice of substance that I have made to teach you what I am about to do for you. Wine was incredibly common in Israel. Um, and as far as, it was far safer to drink than water. Uh, if you had a choice, drink wine in Israel. Don't drink the water. Um, as soon as you crush a grape, the process of fermentation begins. Fermentation happens when the yeast comes into contact with a sugar. The whole interior of the grape is practically pure sugar, just waiting to have a drop of yeast touch it. And so when it comes to grapes, they have natural yeast that are on their skins uh, grapes are jam-packed full of sugars, so the moment you crush that grape, it's starting to ferment, and the sugars are consumed by the yeast, and alcohol is produced. You didn't know you were getting a chemistry lesson today. To get, to get really practical, though, for a moment, grape juice just wasn't a thing in Israel. Um, it physically couldn't be kept for maybe more than a day. Um, you might have grape juice if you immediately drank it moments after crushing grapes, but otherwise, to one degree or another, all, grapes, all grape juice in, in Israel was really wine. And that is the drink that Jesus presents to his disciples. And in this moment, he holds up this drink as a sign, and he says, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out 
for many for the forgiveness of sins. So let's talk about wine for a moment. Um, that, let's talk about the elephant in the room. In our church, uh, and in many churches in uh, the United States, and I assume around the world, wine is not used, but grape juice is used in the Lord's Supper. Why? Um, that question, uh, that's a question with multiple answers. Let me start by talking about where the use of grape juice in the supper came from. Grape juice in the supper is a new innovation in the church. Uh, Until pasteurization was invented in the 1860s, wine was the only option available for the Lord's Supper because it was impossible to store or transport grape juice without it, boom, turning into grape wine by the time it reached its destination. In the 1860s, Louis, Louis Pasteur discovered the process of pasteurization, and it was not long before... Some suggested stopping the formation of alcohols in wine using that process. And that was Thomas Welch's invention in 1869. And so until 154 years ago, no one had ever had grape juice on hand to even use in the Lord's Supper. Why did it catch on? Well, around the same time that grape juice was invented, there was also a growing enlightenment influence in American churches. Until the Enlightenment, if you had gone to Christians or to Jews and you had asked them about alcohol abuse, they would have seen it as a sinful indulgence that was supposed to be responded to with moderation and discipline. Um, The same way they would think of food and sex and other things, right? Other gifts from God can be taken and they can be abused and they can be ruined. And they looked at alcohol the same way. Um, Too much of these things partaken of in the wrong way, can be harmful. And so they always knew this throughout Old Testament and even from the New Testament. Um, You know, Paul says to Timothy, take a little wine for your stomach, right? He doesn't say, take a gallon. Um, But American theologians began to say, look, at rock bottom, man's basic problem is not some sort of inherited sin nature. His problem is that he has bad influences and he has bad examples and he lives in a bad environment. Um, At the end of the day, there was this belief among, a growing belief among the American clergy that man, at the end of the day, is basically good. It's his environment that's the problem. It's the world around us that's the problem. And in particular, they saw alcohol in all its forms as the source of all evil. Um, They said, get rid of alcohol and you will see cheating and abuse disappear, they thought. A man could be good if it wasn't for the bad influence of beer, right? Um, a woman wouldn't be so angry if it weren't for the influence of wine. Uh, if you remove these things, so they thought these people will flourish. And so you had the temperance movement in the 19th century, which was largely driven by socially minded, moralizing, left-leaning Christians. Um, that doesn't mean that people today who believe that alcohol is wrong are going from those motives. But when we're talking about where the temperance movement is, That is historically right. Now, they all meant well. And many of those who were behind the temperance movement had been hurt deeply by alcohol abuse. They had experienced things that many of us perhaps have not. They were actually right that alcohol abuse was a problem and that it was a source of misery to people. Um, They weren't imagining that. That didn't come out of nowhere. And yet, they missed the true problem. Thinking that the environment was the problem and that given a good environment and good influences, you could turn a man back to being good and you could create a moral society. And that was the, that was the mistake that was made in this thinking. Uh, 
And yet, at the core, they had missed Scripture's teaching that you can fix the environment and you still won't fix the heart. Man's heart is deceitful above all things. And that can't be corrected just by removing sinful influences from the environment. Now, churches today do not consciously use grape juice because they don't believe in original sin. (laughs) Um, I am not saying that, and I don't believe that. Um, To them, this is either, there are a few things. One is, this is just the way it's always been done. To to, to most, they see defaulting to grape juice as a way to love our brother because we fear that they'll turn back to sin if they have an encounter with wine in the Lord's Supper. Or um, they think that it's a way to love others by simply avoiding controversy. After all, uh, we think a handful may be offended by wine. Who, who would ever be offended by grape juice? And so we just go to the thing that no one will mind. And yet we should look at Scripture, and we should look at the testimony of church history. At least we should consider the testimony of church history in discerning what is really loving. And we should remember that observing the command of Scripture is the right way to deal with controversy. It's the right way to deal with disunity. Um, I've said this in the past. Avoiding the problem is actually not the way to address disunity. We find unity by going to God's Word and asking God's Word, what do you have to say? When Jesus instituted the supper, he wasn't ignorant. He knew there were people who abused wine. There were, there were, there were abusers of wine even in Jesus' day. Jesus was not caught off guard by that reality. Um, The Proverbs have repeated warnings about the misery that comes if someone abuses wine. And yet, even knowing that people abused wine, Jesus still chose it. He still chose it as as the symbol of his blood. And the whole history of the church from Jesus onward is a history of people all using wine in the supper. The testimony of church history is the easiest part of all. This This is cake. Um... There was only ever one practice in all of the church ever. Whether the apostles or the early church or the Eastern Orthodox Church or the Western Church or the Roman Catholic Church or the Reformed Church or the Coptic Church or other African churches or the Lutheran Church or the Anglican Church, all of them only ever used wine. I think it was almost the only thing they ever agreed on. Read all of church history. Every debate, every possible thing picked apart, all of it torn to shreds. They hurt each other. <laughs> they, even when the Eastern and Western church split, they agreed on the Trinity, and they all used wine in the Lord's Supper. Their fights were not over whether to use wine. Their arguments were over what it meant. Now, that was the sort of thing you'd kill somebody over. Um, what does this mean? Um, I'm going to get to what does this mean in the next point, and you would have everybody in church history rising up, and a third of them at least would be really angry with me. Um, But this point, nobody's going to even, they're going to yawn during this point. So why wine? We need to appreciate there's meaning and significance in wine if we're to understand its use. Uh, I don't want to give you my own answers. I actually... I actually could give you some human reasons why I think wine speaks to the death of Jesus. I think I could give you some some reasons, and you'd be like, huh, that's interesting, probably. Um, But what does the Bible say? Let's just go to the Bible. Psalm 104.15 tells us that God gave wine to gladden the hearts of men. Proverbs 3.10 says that vats bursting with wine are a sign of abundance and plenty. Um. 
What you find in God's word is there is this joyfulness and abundance in wine that the Lord's Supper testifies to. Abundance and plenty and joyfulness, right? The, the Lord's Supper, in the Lord's Supper, wine is symbolic of joy. It's symbolic of celebration. It's symbolic of satisfaction. That's why Jesus says in verse 29 that he won't drink wine again until I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Because there will be this time to celebrate and rejoice, but it is not now, Jesus says. And there's a good corrective that wine brings, right? Gladness um, is something that often can be missing from the Lord's Supper. Uh, I can be guilty of it too when I'm instituting the supper. Sometimes instituting the supper, we end up missing the joyfulness of it. And instead, we can be sour and, and dour Christians. Uh, we can frown during the supper. We, we furrow our brows. We think carefully. We think deeply about these things. I'm not saying that's wrong. But isn't it right for Jesus to also come in and remind us, this is a glad meal too. This is a glad meal. This is a meal of gladness. It's meant to gladden our hearts. It's meant to lift up our eyes. It's meant to give us something that perhaps we've lost during the week. The Bible also um, helps us understand the depths of the symbolism of wine even further. In the Bible, wine also carries elements of God's wrath. Isn't this a wild combination? (laughs) Joyfulness and wrath together in one drink. Um, Jeremiah 25:15 Thus the Lord the God of Israel said to me take from my hand this cup of the the wine of wrath and make it and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it Doesn't seem like I'd want to drink wine in that passage right Revelation 14:10 uses the cup of wine to symbolize the wrath of God And so in scripture wine isn't all positive there's something bitter about wine that communicates judgment when, when we drink wine in the supper, Jesus is displaying for us that he received the cup of judgment so that we wouldn't be destroyed. And now the cup of judgment becomes a cup of blessing and our hearts are gladdened. Um, I have a friend who's a PCA minister. His name's Matthew Bradley. He put it this way. Wine is uniquely capable of representing both the judgment and the blessing that meet at the cross for us. Grape juice fails to adequately represent these truths. It has no bitterness, and therefore offers no, no reminder of judgment. Lacking alcohol, it has no ability to make the heart glad as a celebration of God's goodness and provision. I think that's, I think that's helpful, isn't it? Um, wine is a drink that brings together gladness and judgment. What else can do that? Um, it's a strange combination. <laughs> Who would ever think of gladness and judgment together? Married together. Who would ever imagine that? And yet that is what the cross is. The cross is a place that you can go and you can weep and you can smile at the same time somehow. Right? You think of the cross and you think of these mingling of of different emotions that all come together in this one place. And yet that's something that can be understood about wine. Why wine perhaps conveys some of these things from scripture. But I would say this. Primarily and most importantly, it comes down to the command of Jesus. So even if wine doesn't make you feel glad for some reason, and it may not, or even if you don't see what's significant about wine itself, we can always content ourselves, I think, with the command of Jesus. So in his wisdom, he took a cup of of wine, fermented, mature, fruit of the vine, and he said, drink of it, all of you. He said, do this. He didn't say do that. He did not say 
do something else. He said, he said, do this. Mimic me. Copy me. Do this because I, I love you. There's a blessing in doing this, Jesus says. Our current practice, as you know, is to use grape juice in the Lord's Supper. We believe this is biblically permissible since it is the fruit of the vine. The session of our church has been prayerfully examining our current practice and has been open to the Reformation motto, Semper Reformata, always reforming. We've come to the conclusion that obedience to Jesus' command is for us to do this, means that we should and will use wine in the Lord's Supper beginning in two weeks. Um, We've been willing to submit our own practice to the scrutiny of Scripture and to make changes if we believe that we could be more in step with what God's Word says, and we believe that's what this is. And so in the coming weeks, what we want to do, and the reason we're giving you a couple of weeks, is we want to encourage you to reflect upon Scripture's command as our motivation in doing this. Uh, We do know it's possible that some of you may have qualms about having even a little wine in the Lord's Supper. And if that's that's the case with you, please come and speak to an elder. Um, We actually expect it, um, and we welcome it. We won't begrudge that conversation And we are willing to work through this with folks who have issues of conscience. But starting on February 12th, we're going to move uh, from using grape juice in the supper to serving wine. Um, We have to always be willing to submit our preferences or even our comfortable traditions to God from his word. We should submit ourselves and our lives and our practices to what he's revealed to us. And we hope that you can see that that's what, what we're doing in this case. Um, But just to summarize so far, (laughs) um, what did the institution of the Lord's Supper entail? It entailed the ministry and words of Jesus in the upper room. Jesus is ministering to these men. He's giving them his words. It entails his giving thanks. It, It entailed his giving of the bread. And it entailed his giving of the cup. All of these things. So third this morning, we need to understand the Lord's Supper's meaning. Um, One of the questions many Christians want to know is, okay, I know that God gave this sacrament to us. He showed us how to do it. I know what he said and what he used. What does it mean, right? What did he mean to say by this? Um, Or you could ask it another way. What is it that the Christians throughout the centuries were tearing each other apart over? The question of what does this mean? So in this third point, I want you to see, first, the Lord's Supper is a memorial. Second, I want you to see that it's a means of grace and that it's more than a memorial. So let's just look at both of those as we are on this last point here. The first meaning of the Lord's Supper is that it's a memorial. Look at the words of institution again in verse 24. Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. So from the evening of the Last Supper, Jesus says, when you observe this supper in the future, look back at the breaking of my body. He says, remember that my body was broken. Don't forget what they did to me. Don't forget what I willingly did for you. Remember. This is similar to the Passover, isn't it? Because the purpose of the Passover was for Israel to eat the meal and to remember. God rescued us. He delivered us. There was this looking back aspect of the Lord's Supper. Never forget what the Lord did and how he rescued us and what that reveals to us. God loves us. God provided for us. God delivered us. And he will keep doing it. And in that sense, the Lord's Supper is a meal of remembering. 
right? Because in the supper, we're, we're engaging our minds. We are remembering a historical event that happened in space and time. Jesus died. He was broken. He was beaten. He was humiliated for us. He was mocked for us. He was paraded about. He was whipped for us. He was nailed to that tree for us. In our place, condemned he stood, but by his stripes we were healed. Jesus says, remember. We are not meant to be a people who live out a contentless spirituality. We're not supposed to do things that don't mean anything. If you, if you do something without remembering, you are going through the motions. We are not meant to embrace a feeling or a mood. Um, God intends the supper to be infused with content. That's why he calls us that to remember this real thing that happened in real space and real time. Remember that his body was broken. Remember that he was struck. Remember that he bled for you. Remember all of it. That's what gives this meaning. If we don't remember, we're just eating eating bread. If we don't remember, we're just drinking juice. The ugliness of the cross is, is meant to remind us of the horror of our sin. The ugliness of our own rebellion against God. But we're also supposed to remember the depth of his love. He loved us so much that he gave himself for us. These are past tense statements. We are remembering when we say these things. He let himself be broken. He said that he could have appealed to the Father and he would have sent at once 12 legions of angels. He could have done it. The escape was always an option. He did not take it. Why? Because he was willing to be broken for you and for me. And he never wants us to forget it. What does Paul say? He says, As often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Right? We are remembering his death. It's a meal proclaiming Jesus' death. Of remembering Jesus' death for us, he says, never forget. So it's a meal of remembrance. It's a memorial. But the second meaning of the Lord's Supper is that it's a means of grace What does it mean to say that the Lord's Supper is a means of grace? To say something is a means of grace means that it is a way that God blesses us. I'm not putting it technically. I'm just putting it the way an ordinary human being would understand it. God blesses us through this. If something is a means of grace, he blesses us with it spiritually. And we just said the Lord's Supper is a memorial. It's a thing that causes us to remember Christ and his sacrifice But when we say that it's a means of grace, we are saying that, yes, it's a memorial, but not only a memorial. It's something more. It's more than just engaging our memory about a past event. There's there's meant to be something present tense about the supper. There is something about this supper that as we take it, God gives us a spiritual benefit. Let's talk more about why we believe the Lord's Supper is more than a memorial. Am I just making that up? Am I just influenced by sacramentalism or by the Roman Catholic Church when I say this? How is the Lord's Supper a means of grace? Look at Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 10.16 again. Um, in family worship, in your family worship guide, you should have gone over this verse and seen it already. But I'm going to read it to you again. It says, The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break... Is it not a participation in the body of Christ? 
So notice that first that Paul is saying there's a present tense value in the Lord's Supper. There is something that we participate in as we are doing it. Uh, He says that in the present tense, there is something we do each time we receive the Lord's Supper, namely a participation in the body and blood of Christ. When we receive the Supper, we are experiencing a present day benefit from his blood that was shed and his body that was broken nearly 2,000 years ago. Now, where is that body? Now, where is that blood? He is glorified in heaven at the right hand of the Father. The word Paul uses here is koinonia. Now, we translate that word as participation, at least the ESV today here. And our passage translates it as participation. Sometimes it's translated as fellowship. If you have another version, you might see the word fellowship there. The word here indicates that in the supper, we are sharing in Jesus. We are partaking. What does that mean? There's one commentator. He says that participation means having an active common share in the life, death, resurrection, and presence of Jesus Christ as Lord. There is a top-down reality which reflects the truth that by the power of the Holy Spirit, when we enjoy the Lord's Supper, we are participating in the body and blood of Jesus. That same body that was broken for us and raised up, that same blood that was shed for us, we're participating in it. So the point here is the new, the risen and exalted and glorified Christ is now in heaven at the Father's right hand. He exists in heaven and he has a glorified human nature which he has forever. And yet the benefits of his death come to us in the Lord's Supper. And they don't come about because we are willing ourselves or exerting ourselves or we are thinking hard enough or any other reason than this that the Holy Spirit chooses through this sacrament to spiritually bless his people with the benefits of Jesus' body and blood here on earth. Um, he stays in heaven. We feast on him here. Now, I mentioned the Holy Spirit as the agent of this grace. Um, I could see sort of somebody saying, uh, look, have you just artificially inserted the Holy Spirit in here? Why do you think the Holy Spirit is is participating somehow in enabling this to happen. Um, Well, he's not explicitly here in 1 Corinthians 10, 16, and yet the book of Ephesians reminds us that God blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, and he reminds us that he does that through the Holy Spirit. Every spiritual blessing that you enjoy is enabled by the Holy Spirit. They are spiritual blessings because they come to us through the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one who takes the benefits of Jesus' death and brings them to us, right? The one who connects you and I to the life and death of Jesus. That's what the Holy Spirit is. While Jesus accomplished this redemption for us in the past, the Holy Spirit is the one who applies that work of redemption to us, giving us every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. This is what we mean when we say that the Lord's Supper is more than a memorial. Sinclair Ferguson says it this way, In the Supper, the Spirit comes to close the gap, as it were, between Christ in heaven and the believer on earth, and to give communion with the exalted Savior. The Lord's Supper is a gift. Um, You think about a gift that you enjoy, 
on a routine basis is that that gift can become routine. And yet, the hope is that that is not the case with the Lord's Supper, because the Lord's Supper is a gift. It's a blessing. It's a blessing in which God has answered our prayers, our prayers for a Savior. Right? In the Supper, we receive God's grace and kindness to us that he's given to us as a visible sermon to us, so that we don't just remember what Jesus has done, but so that we can receive the benefits of what he has achieved for us at the cross. In this meal, the Savior comes near, and he gives us gifts, and he gives us blessings. The Lord intends this supper to be something that you love because you love Jesus. And he wants you to know that you never need to feel guilty about enjoying it. It's actually the point that as you love Jesus, you love his supper, not because of the bread or the wine, but because of Jesus, because of who he is, who he is for you, what he's done for you. And so as you come to this supper in prayer, come to this supper in need, come to this supper in faith, and look to it the way you look to Jesus, with the expectancy that the Holy Spirit is blessing you with soul-nourishing, faith-strengthening blessings from heaven. Baptism is the sacrament of spiritual birth, and the Lord's Supper is a sacrament of spiritual growth. He has given both of them to us. And so let's prepare even now to grow together. Let's pray. Lord, your gifts are rich, far more rich than this message or even uh, anything else we do can completely explain or portray. And so I pray that you would give all of your people eyes to see the joy of your promises on display in this very gift that you've given us. You have given us your supper. You've promised to bless its administration. Would you set our eyes on Jesus even today in this meal as we remember your promises, secured, signed, and sealed for all of us? We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen truly reflects the teaching of your word. Grant us your spirit so that we can know and see and believe and practice the truth. Help us to follow these sacraments to where they point. Help us not to camp out at them. Help us to repent and to believe and to be regenerated and washed in the blood of Jesus Christ by faith alone. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.